Welcome to a bonus episode of Leading Simple with Rusty George. And today we're so excited because we have a special guest, and that is pastor and author Andy Stanley. Andy's been kind of a personal hero of mine over the years. Many of you may know him from some of his books or maybe even his father, Dr. Charles Stanley. But Andy uh, and his church has celebrated 25 years at North Point Ministries, and they see uh, well over 20,000 people every single weekend. And on top of that, he has a a podcast that reaches millions every month and a program called Your Move that happens uh, on Saturday nights in a lot of markets after Saturday Night Live, uh, reaching an audience that is uh, pretty much unreached. And there are millions of people watching that. And he's an author and just an incredible, incredible follower of Jesus. And he has a new book out called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And I can't wait for you to hear about that and some of his leadership tips for all of us. So enough with me. Let's talk to Andy. Andy, welcome to the podcast. I'm just so honored to have you with us. I know you've done a lot of these, and I know it's been a busy weekend for you with the 25th anniversary of North Point, and I just really appreciate you giving us some time. So welcome. Yeah, well, I was happy to do this. You're, you're like family. So this was, a, <laughs> that was an easy yes. Well, I appreciate that. All right, I want to jump right into your latest book. I love all of your books, but I feel like this one is incredibly helpful for everybody, not just pastors, not just church leaders, uh, not just people trying to understand the Bible, but just people trying to figure out their life. And it's better decisions, fewer regrets. Tell me a little bit about where this book came from. Well, um, at the beginning of the book, I tell the story of my dad refusing to um, answer questions for me and just asking me questions instead. And it was infuriating as a kid, but he was teaching me to make decisions. He would say this. I would ask him a question or ask him to help me do something. And he would say, well, what would you do if I wasn't here? And I'd be like, you are here. And he's like, yeah, but I'm not always going to be here. So what would you do? And then he would say, well, I tell you what, you pray about it. I'm like, no, I just need you to tell me. And um, so early on, I, he put the weight of the responsibility of my life in my hands, maybe too early at times, but it's like, you know what, you, I have to prepare you because, you know, you got to make decisions. And the way he did this, eventually it, you know, connected the dots for me that there is a really, really important relationship between the questions we ask and the decisions we make. And we all know this on the backside of a bad decision, because on the backside of a bad decision, we often say, I should have asked more questions, or I should have asked better questions. So in Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, I'm giving the you know, readers five questions that to ask every time they make a decision of any magnitude, but especially the really important decisions. Um, and essentially, I'm trying to add to their decision-making filter, and we all have one. And we all actually ask questions when we're making a decision. Sometimes we're not sure we don't know what the questions are because they're subconscious questions like, is this going to hurt me? Will anyone find out? You know, some questions that really aren't that helpful. But adding these five questions to the questions that we're already asking and asking them intentionally will guarantee. And again, I learned all these from other people, especially, you know, growing up, we'll pretty much guarantee we're going to make better decisions. And as a pastor, just like you, Rusty, nothing breaks our hearts more than watching people undermine their own success and undermine their own relationships and undermine their own finances by their own decisions. There's, mm -hmm. there's already enough, you know, resistance in life to making progress. The last thing we want to do 
um, is to, uh, you know, to create our own headwind. And so this book is designed to help people make better decisions, consequently live with fewer regrets. So that's kind of the backstory. Okay. So you, you give us five questions to ask. I love the way you've, you've just set this up for us. We all have a filter we think through, whether we know it or not. And that was really insightful because it forced me to think about what is my filter? Yeah. And a lot of times it's what's best for the church, what's best for my family, those kind of things. What will I enjoy? What's the path of yeah. least resistance? Yeah. Um, but you give us these five things, some of which are maybe a, a little bit intuitive, but we might pass them up because we think ah, that's too difficult. But some of these we probably haven't thought of before. Can you just walk us through these five? And I want to just kind of stop you along the way and ask questions. Yeah. So the first question, I call it the integrity question. And this is the self-leadership question. As we've talked about before, um, the, the hardest person, the most difficult person in the world to lead is the person in the mirror. So this is the integrity question. The question is, am I being honest with myself, really? Am I... Am I being honest with myself? Pause, really. In other words, am I telling myself the truth or am I selling myself? And we all have an internal salesperson that immediately starts selling us on an idea as soon as our heart gets around, wrapped around it or wrapped around that person. And so to try to shut down the salesman in us and just to look in the mirror and say, okay, I know what I've told everybody else. I know what I'm telling myself, but Am I being honest with myself really? Why am I really doing this? Why am I really going there? Why am I really calling? Why am I really calling back? So that's the integrity question, being honest with ourselves. Okay, um, let me just stop you right there and ask you yeah. this question. Because I, I know you've done a lot of study on the Enneagram and you've talked a lot about it in your podcast. I think your daughter uh, got you into this a little bit yeah, with Enneagram. And you're a number one, if I'm not yep. mistaken, right? Okay, I'm a number six. Uh, that's right. So, um, do you think there's certain numbers of the Enneagram that find it easier to lie to themselves? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I bet the lies sound different. Okay. Different Enneagram and the questions that we, the bad questions that we ask intuitively probably line up with our Enneagram. I mean, threes want to be, um, popular or, you know, want to be liked. So that's, that can lead to questions that aren't necessarily helpful. Um, ones, you know, they used to call us the perfectionist. Now they're saying, no, you just like to improve things. I like that. I like to be the improver, not the <laughs> perfectionist, but in an attempt to always make things better or improve things, um, that can lead to trouble. If I don't, you know, I can be dishonest with myself if I'm not careful. So yeah, I, def I think temperament, personality, all of those things weigh in. And that's why regardless, we just have to stop sometimes. And I say, look in the mirror, especially if it's a big decision, decision and ask out loud. Okay. Am I being honest with myself? Am I, am I do, have I been honest with myself about why I'm doing this? And in the book with all five questions, I say, look, you don't have to follow through on your answer to the question, but you at least owe it to yourself to ask the question because what you don't know certainly can hurt you. So um, why not know and then decide? So that's, yeah, I think all those things factor in. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so number two, second question. Yeah, the legacy question. Um, this, is, this is one of my favorite questions because it pulls us out of our immediate context. The legacy question is this, what story do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell? And here's the point. Whatever we are going through right now, whatever it is in our marriage, our relationships, financially, and we're trying to make a decision, eventually 
this incident or this season is going to be nothing more than a story we tell. And sometimes I use the illustration. I say, if somebody asks you about, if you're my age or in your 30s or 40s, and somebody says, ask you about high school, think about what you do. You reduce high school to a sentence or maybe two sentences. It's just, it's just the story that you tell. Well, the same is true for the story you tell about a divorce, a business transaction, a transition to a different company, a different organization, starting an organization. So when this is nothing more than a story you tell, what story do you want to tell? And you write the story of your life one decision at a time. So write a good story so that you don't have to skip any chapters when you tell your kids the story of your life so that they're not embarrassed by a chapter in your life and never make a decision that makes you a liar for life. We all have regrets and maybe we'll talk about that later on. But when we make decisions that create regrets, then we're always tempted to skip that part or to lie about that part of our story. So the question is, what story do you want to tell? That's question two. Okay. Question three. Uh, question three is the conscience question. Uh, question three is, is there attention that deserves my attention? Is there attention that deserves my attention? And here's how this works. We've all been there. You're about to make a big decision. Um, you know, on the left side of the column, everything checks off. You know, everybody does it this way. This is the industry standard. It's not illegal. It's not immoral. It's not unethical. Um, everybody expects you to do this. This is how everybody handles this. But as you move toward actually making the decision, pulling the trigger on the decision, there's just there's just something on the inside that just doesn't sit right and you don't know why. So in the book, the third question is pay attention to that tension. Don't brush by it and don't rush by it. If it's something about her, something about him, something about them, something about the deal, something about the house, something about the timing, something about the location, whatever it is. And the problem is, when we have that tension, there's very little information to substantiate it. So the temptation is to say, ah, oh, I'm just having a bad day or I'm afraid or, you know, whatever it might be. And we discount it and we opt for, you know, everything on the left side of, of the column. Well, the problem with that is if you're a Christian, oftentimes this is how God gets our attention. And this is how the Holy Spirit gets our attention. And if we will pause, oftentimes, oftentimes more information surfaces, other reasons surface. So in the book, I say, don't brush by that. Don't rush by it. Let it bother you until it either goes away or you discover something that gives it some, some weight. Um, because the temptation oftentimes is to just ignore that kind of still small voice. The other thing that happens that we've all experienced is you're about to make a decision based on all the information and somebody comes along and they ask you a pesky question. And suddenly they they create tension in you or a hesitation in you or in me. And it's so infuriating. Our temptation is to kind of brush off the information because of the source of the information. And in the book, I tell this, this story about um, Sandra and I bought a piece of property. We we're going to build a house on it. Then we decided it's too far away. Um, it's, you know, there were several reasons we thought it's a bad idea. So we were literally putting the house on the, putting the property on the market. And my mom of all people, you know, she was in her seventies. Then my mom comes along and says, you know what? Um, excuse me. She's in her sixties, late sixties. She said, I don't think you should sell that property. I think you'll regret that for the rest of your life. And then she, it was at the end of a conversation and she went home. I'm like, and my first tendency was like, what do you know? Okay, what do you know about real estate? What do you know about residential real estate? What do you, you know, what do you know? But it just, it just caused a hesitation. And we 
allowed that to grow and we did not sell the property and we have lived on that property for 20 years. If we had sold that property, we would have just regretted that for the rest of our lives. But in the moment, everything logically, rationally said, this isn't a great idea but she caused us to question it. And again, you can't chase all of those down. That, that doesn't mean that's how you make the decision. But in the book, I say, look, I'm just asking, is there a tension that deserves your attention? And if mm. so, don't brush by it. Don't rush by it. So mm. That's so good. Okay, I'm going to let you do the, uh, the last one here. Um, actually, I think we have two left. And then I want to ask you something else about yeah. other people, like you just mentioned your mom. So give us the fourth one. Yeah, the fourth one is one I've talked about since I started teaching kids in high school. When I was in college, I've been talking about this. And the reason I've talked about this one for so long is it's the one my dad really raised me on. Mm -hmm. The fourth question is the maturity question. And it's what is the wise thing to do? In light of my past experience, in light of my current circumstances, in light of my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? Not necessarily everybody else, but in light of my past experience, my current circumstances and state of mind, and what I've just come out of, and my future hopes and dreams, what is not the ethical, moral, legal thing to do? What is the wise thing to do? And I call it the maturity question because it takes a great deal of maturity to pull away from the border right between legal and illegal, moral and immoral, ethical and unethical. And our tendency is to live right on that line. But the problem of living right on the line is there's no margin for error. And here's what everybody in your audience knows when we're honest with ourselves. Our greatest regrets, our greatest regrets, morally, ethically, uh, financially, uh, relationally, whatever it might be, our greatest regrets are always preceded by a series of unwise decisions. And so if we're not living as wise people, we snuggle right up to the edge of immoral, illegal, and unethical. So when it comes to decision-making, the question we should ask is, okay, this may be moral, ethical, legal, but is it the wise thing to do? Is it the wise thing to do? Years ago, Ron Blue gave Sandra and I, uh, Ron Blue is an author and a the financial advisor, has written lots of books, great guy. He gave us some great advice that falls into this bucket. He said, Andy, he said, never do anything financially, never do anything financially that you would not want to have to, that you would not want to stand up. You would not want to have to stand up in front of your church and explain, never do anything financially that you wouldn't want to have to explain to your congregation. It may be legal, it may be moral, ethical, but if you wouldn't want to have to explain it, just don't do it. Mm. Well, that was extraordinary advice, but that, that's the kind of advice that sits right in that middle place of wisdom. What is the wise thing to do? And there have been so many situations, Rusty, where people wanted us to get in on deals or buy stuff or invest with a group. And I, I, every time I'd, I'd run it through the Ron Blue question, I'm like, nope, just not going to do it. And I've never regretted, um, again, making that decision within that framework. So that's the fourth question. The last question is the relationship question. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other four questions, I can guarantee you, you will make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. There's a return on investment with those first four. This last question is costly, but this last question is how you change the world. And the last question is the relationship question. And the question is, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? This question is going to cost you, but relationships are costly. And relationships are how you move the needle in a community or in a church or in a company or in the world. So what does love require of me? So those are the five questions, better decisions, fewer regrets. 
So you mentioned a couple of uh, people that spoke up in your life, your mom, Ron Blue. And these are, are people you love. These are people who are wise. Talk to us a little bit about the voices that we do choose to listen to, because sometimes if all you have in your life are people that uh, kind of echo what you already think, they yeah. can't really advise you on some of these things. Sometimes no. you need some of that, that I wouldn't say negative input, but people at least that think differently than you do. Obviously, you want um, good input in your life, good advisors. How have you tried to weed through that? And how do you know which voices to listen to? Um, well, I can let me speak to that professionally first. So in our organization, I have three groups of people that I run medium to large decisions by. And I'll just be honest. I am always tempted to skip that process because I want to hurry up. I'm sure I know what we need to do. Let's just go forward and I'll you know, get forgiveness, or maybe it's not that big a deal. Maybe, you know, they won't care. And that's our, my staff team, my direct reports. Then we have a board of directors that are all volunteer board of directors, super smart people. And then there's a stewardship team that looks at our organization only through the lens of finances. So for me, organizationally, I've set these teams up. And um, again, some of the first group works for me, which is a pro and a con, right? Because if somebody's getting a paycheck, I mean, as honest as they want to be, there's just certain boats you're not going to rock for even, you know, in terms of being honesty. And it's not a matter of choosing to be dishonest. You're just more careful. You're just more measured. And sometimes we don't need people to be measured. We just need them to be abrupt and gritty and just get to the point. So professionally, those three circles are circles we run all of our organizational decisions through. And I've learned through the years and for 25 years that when there is a yes in those three circles, it's a go, even if I'm not 100% certain. And I'm rarely 100% certain about anything. And that's one reason I need smarter people around me. Personally, personally, and this is where I think we all have some work to do at times because of the, the seasons of life change. Personally, there's always been one or two men in my life who know they can call at any time and ask anything they want. Unfortunately for me, one of them just passed away earlier this year, Reggie Campbell. Mm. And um, Reggie Campbell was brutal in all the best ways. And I knew he loved me. And so I knew I could trust his, his, his harsh questions and, and not harsh, but you know, he was very direct. One of his questions was this, I think I mentioned this in the book. Yeah, I do. One of his questions was, Andy, what do you hope I don't ask you about? And I'm like, that's, that's cheating. You got to dig, baby. You got you to gotta ask me. You can't just say, what do you hope I don't? But again, it was very direct, but consequently, um, you know, he kept me honest with myself. And again, that, that integrity question is so important because if we're lying to ourselves, we're never going to lead ourselves well. In an organization, you fire the liar. And so in the book, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, I say some of us need to fire the liar inside of us and just tell ourselves the truth. So I think there's, we can set this up formally within an organization, but the real, you know, the, the challenging part is to set that up personally and to give people not only permission, but in my situation and your situation, we have to give them access because we can be too busy. I mean, we can say, oh, you got permission, but by the way, I'm, I'm just too busy. So permission and access and the tricky part, and maybe this is just my season of life, as I get older and as people come and go, um, once they go, then I have to kind of rev that whole thing back up to find that new group. And as I get older, there are fewer and fewer people who are ahead of me that have the, you know, the, the life experience 
to, you know, feed back into me. And, and, and they don't necessarily have to be older, but when I was younger, it was easier to find that group. Um, right. on just one real quick, funny story on this. Um, I've shared this publicly many times about, it's been about seven years ago now. My dad was either 80 or 81. He was still pastoring the church. He just recently resigned from the church. Finally, he was 81 or maybe he was 82. And he called me one day. He said, Andy, do you know what I would like? I said, what? He said, I, I would like to find somebody who's a little bit further ahead of me and ask them some questions. <laughs> I said, dad, there aren't any, they're all retired. If they're even alive there. And, and, and then I said, but I would ask you this. I said, dad, if you were able to find someone who could, you know, who's further ahead than you, what would you ask them? He said, I would ask them if this ever gets any easier. And I said, do you know how discouraging that is to me as a pastor? So that was his question. But even the point being, even at that season of life, he was, you know, we all need somebody we want to can look to to say, hey, what's down the road and what do I, you know, what do I need to be looking out for? So anyway, long answer to a good question. Uh, let me ask you about the term regrets. Um, there are so many things I think all of us wish we could have done differently and not even like horrific mistakes from our past, but just, I wish I knew then what I know now. Yeah. What are a couple things that you know now you wish you would have known, let's say five years in to North Point Ministries? Yeah. Um, I, my greatest regret just professionally is I wish I had leaned in more to the people who thought bigger than me, which when I say that people think, oh, you're just making that up because you're such a big thinker. I am not a big thinker. I've been fortunate to be surrounded with some big thinkers. You've, you know some of them, David McDaniel and others who, who had a bigger vision than I did for some of the things that we were doing. Fortunately for me, I trusted them. If you surround your people, you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, you're going to make better decisions. Um, as Jim Collins says, we should all aspire to be the dumbest person in the room. Mm. So um, fortunately, I have been like Reggie Joyner was a really big thinker. And I would just yank back on the reins sometimes. And I wish I had given him more leeway to run because he had great ideas. He had great intuition about creativity and environments. And I just, I just you know, I just pulled back sometimes. So in the last, you know, five, 10 years, probably the last, you know, five to seven years, when somebody comes with a really big idea, my natural inclination, and I've talked about this, is to how the decision to death instead of just, let's just wow for a minute and think about that. So I've tried to be very intentional on not mm. pulling back the reins. I really wish I'd leaned into some bigger thinkers earlier, which sounds like a crazy thing to say, but those that I, I think we would have been better off, but that part of it was fear yeah. and part of it was, we've never done this before. And part of it was finances, but uh, we had less to fear perhaps than I thought. Well, that's so well said. I, I just immediately resonate with that thinking, boy, I wish in my earlier days, I would have just said yes, a whole lot more, or go yeah. for it a whole lot more yeah. because you're just so nervous. You just yep. feel like you're driving the, uh, you know, the bike down the gravel hill and you think, I don't want to mess this up. Okay, just for our leaders that are listening, um, off the top of your head, three to five leadership books that you highly recommend. Um, it could be recent, it could be old, but you know, just whatever comes to mind. I know I'm springing this question on you, but I know you, you love are. to talk about books, so I'll just throw it out there for you. Um, most recently, this is not a leadership book, but every, every leader should read this book. 
Um, it's called the, the Righteous Mind. Familiar with this? I cannot mm-hmm. pronounce the author's last name, so I'm not going to try. But it's called The Righteous Mind. It's a book about how people make decisions. Um, and I read it, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And um, this book, I don't know of a book in the last few years that has so not reshaped, but explained things to me uh, in terms of what we experience in culture. It's, it's, a, it's written by an, an atheist who was very, very, very left wing that was trying to figure out how people on the right side thought about life and was trying to explain it um, to sort of left wing people, uh, very, very um, progressive or liberal people. But what he discovered and what he discovered about himself is, is so fascinating. So anybody who is trying to sell people on things or motivate people to do things, The Righteous Mind, I highly recommend. The first leadership book I ever read was called The Leadership Challenge. And it was so instrumental. And I've, I've wondered from time to time, was it so instrumental because it's the first book I read or was it really that good? When I go back and pick up my original copy, it's really that good. Mm-hmm. It's called The Leadership Challenge. It's been republished. Um, a couple times or reprinted a couple times, same name, fascinating, fascinating book. Um, in terms of other leadership um, books, I loved Andy Grove's book and maybe it's the title. The title was only the paranoid survive, only the paranoid survive. Andy Grove's uh, ran Intel, um, his story about competing with Japanese and com- uh, creating p- computer chips is so fascinating. And the reason he titled the book that way is that all leaders should live with some a, a, a healthy sense of paranoia that no matter how well things are going, there's something that's not going to go well. No matter how things are going, the, the leader's responsibility is to look far enough out in the future to anticipate trouble and then to come back and say, hey, let's prepare for the future. So only the paranoid survives. Those there, I mean, I've read gobs and gobs of leadership stuff. Those Those three, I think in terms of what I, what have shaped my thinking. Um, another one that our whole team read, again, not a leadership book, but helped us think early on is Peter Sinji's book, um, The Fifth Discipline. Mm-hmm. It's a really hard book to read, but it shaped us. And also Al Reese's book, Focus, um, an easier book to read that shaped us in terms of just focus. So um, those, those were, you know, those are, those are books that became kind of textbooks in terms of how we begin to think and how we really became a learning organization, which is always the goal. So you have so limited amount of time that you can just sit and read based upon other responsibilities that you have. Yet every time I hear you talk about what you are reading, it's something I've never heard anybody else say they're reading. It's not just a typical... It may not be good. No, that's good because it's not just, you know... Maxwell and Jim Collins and all of that. Yeah. You're, I've heard you quote, you know, a variety of history books, um, you know, presidents, Winston Churchill. Um, and then, of course, all the new atheists, you're reading their stuff. What causes you to pick out the books that you do? Um, I am far more interested in people who I know from the outset don't agree with me than people who do. So if you run in evangelical circles like I do, um, I'm reading books that aren't typically considered evangelical reading material. And I'm glad you asked this question, Rusty, because um, people often say, well, Andy, what are you reading right now? And I'm often hesitant. In fact, I'm always hesitant to say because it sounds like I'm endorsing the book or recommending the book. And I'm not. I read all of Bart Ehrman's books, all of them. I just read his book on heaven and hell, the history of the afterlife. It's I, I, I want to keep up with him because 
he is in culture the, the person that is doing the most in terms of his publishing to undermine Christianity. Um, so of, I need to keep up with what he writes. Well, I think he's fascinating to read. I enjoy it. It's not, I don't, you know, I look forward to him publishing a new book, but I don't say, yeah, everybody should, you know, go out and read all of Bart's books. I mean, some people should, as far as the new atheist. I mean, again, that's the front line of what we're talking about. Um, you know, in our churches, or it should be. And again, that those books are, have sort of come and gone in terms of their popularity. But at the time, you know, if everybody or supposedly everybody on a college campus is reading Richard Dawkins, then I would be foolish not to read uh, Richard Dawkins. So, um, and I enjoy it, honestly, it's, it's not a drudgery. So sometimes what I'm reading, I don't share or recommend, <laughs> lest, you know, somebody's mother calls me and says, my son picked up that book you recommended. <laughs> Has it been back to church since? I'm like, ah. So, and the other thing while we're on reading, my pattern for the last 10 years or so has been, I never read. I listen, I get, I use audible. I listen mm. to a book, um, you know, a third of the way through a book, I'll know, oh gosh, this is a book I'm going to want to go back to. Then I usually buy it on Google books or Kindle. I, I like both. I need to pick one or the other. So I ge generally buy the books I love twice, listen to it once. Cause I got time. I'm driving around. So I'm way behind on podcasts and, you know, that sort of stuff, but I'm always listening to a book. And with Kindle, of course, and then with uh, Google Books, you can search and cut and paste. And so in terms of research or being able to go back, they are way better. But I don't read those books to begin with. I listen first. That's, that's how I did all those books that you mentioned. I read at night on a Kindle and I always read historical fiction just for entertainment. So that's kind of my hmm. you know, reading routine. So, oh, I like that. That's good. It's not inexpensive, but it works for me. Well, I'm sure I don't, the I don't have any other it. hobbies. I don't play golf. I don't have a horse. I don't hunt. I don't fish. I don't collect anything. <laughs> I just read. So I decided that's my guilty pleasure is buying books twice. Um, okay. So can, can I ask you about teaching for just a minute? Uh, yeah. you, you came out with uh, basically your formula of how to write a message based upon uh, five questions. And it comes down to me, we, God, you, we, which is start with something personal. And then don't we all feel this way? Here's what God says, and so on and so forth. That's probably been 15 years now. Yeah. Has anything changed in that? And has anything changed in your style of teaching or message prep based upon just the way people think and maybe even shorter attention spans? Um, not so much shorter attention spans on purpose. Um, but yes, there's, there's a couple things. The me, we, God, you, we formula works. I, I hear from salespeople that say, Andy, I hope you don't mind. I took the God part out and put our product in. It works <laughs> great. I'm like, okay, you know, whatever it sells, you know, it's me. Here's what I'm dealing with. We all deal with it. Here's what the scripture says. Here's what you should do. Wouldn't it be amazing if everybody did that? That's, that's the formula and it works. And I use that frequently, but in our church, especially in a series, I don't use that all the time. And one of the things that I've done more and more of is something I learned many years ago from a guy named Gary Smalley. Many of your listeners will know who he is. He passed away some years ago. But Gary would talk, Gary was an amazing communicator and he talked about salting the audience, not assaulting the audience, but salting the audience. And what he would do is he would start with something that created some tension, which is always good and leave it and then talk about whatever he was going to talk about and then come back around to it. And in the last three years, I've started doing that a lot. Um, 
not to create confusion, but to kind of set something out there with kind of, huh. Now, today we're talking about, and it's like, well, wait, what does that have to do with this? And then circle back around and pick it up later. I love doing that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just a way of communicating. It's not necessarily the best way, but I find myself doing that more and more. And part of it is because um, we're able, you know, we're on, I think, 35, net, 35 uh, markets right after Saturday Night Live. When I think about that group of people and how quick I want to get their attention right after Saturday Night Live, I, there's no margin for error. And while that does not drive my preaching style, um, that audience is on my mind and that's who I want to talk to anyway. So anything that can be intriguing enough to make somebody lean in, I mean, that's just what we're supposed to do with our introductions anyway. So I have, I've altered a little bit. The other thing that you might be interested in is once COVID hit and I'm preaching to an empty room, you know, that was dreadful. And I'd done that before, but I only had to do it every once in a while, but the thought of doing this every week. So I realized, okay, I can't do this. So I scrapped my normal way of preparing, not preparing my normal way of manuscripting. And I just, um, excuse me, I scrapped my normal way of outlining and manuscript the entire message and put it on a teleprompter. And probably two weeks after Easter of this year, I've been reading my sermons just straight to camera because everybody's on the other end of that piece of glass. There's, there's nobody in the room and that it was just too hard to do it the old way. So for me, um, and I watch it every week and I feel like I've gotten better and better at, you know, the pace and everything. So I'm reading my sermons. Um, and, uh, you know, once we go back to putting people in the room, I'll switch back. So that was, that was an interesting challenge. So I don't recommend it, but we tried it. So. Yeah, it's a, I think a challenge for all of us. I've been doing the teleprompter a lot too. And you start to get a little uh, codependent on it. You kind of need it. And uh, then you go back well, to a live room and it gets a little Well, different. in some ways it's better because you can be so precise. Exactly. And to your point a minute ago, my sermons got shorter Yeah. because I'm not wasting any words. It's just, hey, let's just say it the best way possible and keep going. So it'll be interesting when we go back. So, so uh, your oldest son uh, got into stand-up comedy. He's very funny, by the way. What have you learned from him about comedy in teaching? Because you're, you're naturally funny, but have you, have you learned anything from him or has he coached you in any way to make you even more, uh, you know, useful of that, of that tool? He makes me jealous is what he makes me because I'm thinking <laughs> there are so many things that would be fun to say that, you know, preachers, I mean, we all have those things we know we can't say or we can't say that way and he gets to say them. So, yes, he does. you know, there's that. We have good conversations. I feel like um, I honestly, I have tried to stay out of coaching him because I don't know anything about stand-up, but I know a lot about communication. So it's been fun watching him figure some things out on his own. And he's never, um, you know, come back at me with, hey, if you had done this or that, but I have asked him from time to time, okay, Andy, Andrew, I'm going to tell this story. And one of the things he's taught me that comedians do is if they have a story that has kind of a funny punchline, then the goal is to work back through the story and find punchline after punchline after punchline that builds the big punchline. And it's usually just a remark in the midst of a story as opposed to telling the story with the kind of aha punchline. So that technique mm. is super interesting. So I find myself um, when I'm 
telling a story, thinking about, okay, for the sake of entertainment, because, hey, we should be, we certainly don't want to be not entertaining and we're not entertaining, but we should be entertaining. Um, or it, it's not entertainment, but we should be entertaining. Um, so that, you know, so things like that, when we've had conversations about what makes a great story or a great joke, a great joke, that's been, that's been a lot of fun. I, I'd never thought about the anatomy of a joke before, but there's, mm-hmm. there's a whole lot to it. So, um, my favorite new story Andrew's telling is, <laughs> and he made up the whole thing is, uh, my daughter, my daughter, Allie got married in March. And so he made up this story about, you know, we don't throw rice anymore. People use sparklers and how dangerous that is to hold a sparkle at eye level. So, but then he tells the story about his mom saying, we're going to use bubbles that as they leave, we're going to use bubbles. And this was during the pandemic. And he says, mom, do you not understand how a pandemic spreads? So we're all just going to blow the germs onto the bride and groom. As anyway, it's it's very funny. So it's been oh, it's been fun watching him develop the craft of uh, just finding common events like comedians do and spinning them in such a way that they're funny. So that's great. Well, last last question here, maybe just two last ones. Um, what do you hope the church learns uh, during this COVID season and as they come out of it on the other side? I keep hearing people saying, I can't wait to get back to normal, back to normal, back to normal. But I think we'd all agree we'd like something better than normal. What would you say to that? What are you hoping is on the other side for the church? Well, for our church, I'm hoping our community is more aware of us because of what we've done in the community. And I hope the community is more grateful that we're in the community because of what we've done in the community, because we Mm. pivoted all of our time and attention from shoulder to shoulder worship on Sundays to doing things in the community. So I hope personally, and I think this is this should be true of all of our communities, um, as we, of course, want to get back to worshiping together, whatever normal is, we've all had an opportunity to retool and to rethink what, what do we not want to bring back into the future? What, what's going to look better? We should be better for it personally. We should be better for it organizationally. Um, I was talking to somebody earlier today who had some concerns about what's going to happen to the church. I'm like, the church is going to be fine. It just may look different. And hopefully we, you know, and I'm not minimizing the pain and the disruption this has caused at all, but hopefully the church will emerge from this better for it and with a better reputation in our communities, because when the need is greater than ever, we should come through greater than ever. And you've, uh, you know, participated in, in Be Rich, you know what we're doing with that. And, you know, we moved Be Rich up earlier this year. We'd already planned to do that. And so to see what our churches are doing for the community when, you know, a lot of churches aren't able to meet or, or, or aren't meeting, um, I, I'm hoping that, um, you know, it, it, it broadens our reach and certainly helps with our reputation. So I think there's some good things that could come from this other than preaching uh, to a screen. <laughs> <laughs> we all got that's really good at go away. using a teleprompter. Well, that's yeah, a good, yeah. that's other a good news. Teleprompter, yeah. <laughs> Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the years of service, the legacy of integrity, and just the way that uh, you've led us well. You know, we're in the Christian church. We don't have a pope, um, but we certainly lean on each other. And uh, you've been a tremendous influence for so many of us. So I really, really uh, appreciate you and Sandra and all that North Point does and just pray great days for you guys ahead. So thank you so much. Thank you, Rusty. Thanks for what you're doing on the West Coast. It's fun partnering with you, and I look forward to our next conversation. 
Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, that was just such great stuff from Andy. And make sure you pick up his book, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, available wherever books are sold. And uh, check out uh, the next podcast, which I believe comes out tomorrow as I get to sit down and have a conversation with our good friend Brad and talk about all kinds of great stuff regarding where Jesus is in the midst of all of our difficulty and then how to find our leadership style. We will talk to you soon. Let's just-